When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for, Judas, uh, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from their chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of these whom you have given me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ashley. <clears throat> Thanks, Josh, for uh, inviting me to proclaim God's word to you today. I'm excited to do that, and I'm going to start with what might sound like a very obvious statement, um, and that is that Jesus saves us, we can't save Jesus. And we can't save ourselves either, right? That might sound like a really obvious statement, but sometimes it's a lesson that we need to learn. It's a lesson that Peter had to learn in this passage. You know, especially, especially when the, the pressure gets turned on and we feel like we just need to do something, right? Like if the pressure gets turned up in our society, we feel like maybe that um, some people are against um, Christians or against what we believe, and when we feel that, we feel that pressure, right? Or if the pressure gets turned up in the church, we feel like we need to, we need to help the church grow, or there's something wrong in the church that we need to fix, or maybe when the pressure gets turned up in our families, that if, uh, if a child's uh, starting to rebel or something like that, all of a sudden we feel like I need to do something, right? Well, in this passage, the pressure's turned all the way up. We've, uh, as a church, we've been preaching through the Gospel of John for about a year now, and in this passage, we've come to the brink. Jesus is about to die. And today, everyone probably in this room knows that Jesus died on a cross. I think if we walked out on the street I think just about everyone on the street would probably know that too, that Jesus died on a cross. But at this point in history, it hadn't happened yet. But there were people who wanted to make it happen. Caiaphas, the high priest who's in charge of the temple, wanted to make it happen. You can see that in verse 14. John reminds us uh, that Caiaphas is the one who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And he's talking about Jesus. He's, he's planning for Jesus to die. 
And in this passage, that plan is already set in motion. Uh, Judas is in the act of betraying him. We can see that in verse 3. I'm sorry, in verse 2. It says, Judas who betrayed him. Or we could translate that, who is now betraying him. Or again in verse 5, Judas who is now betraying him. That's Judas, right? Judas, one of the twelve disciples, one of Jesus' twelve disciples. Judas who had, who had just sat down and had dinner with Jesus uh, right before this. And now, as we speak, he's leading a group of soldiers to come and arrest Jesus and put him to death. What's Jesus going to do? Well, I, I work at a university, and because of uh, campus shootings around the nation, we've had multiple trainings and drills about what we should do if a shooter comes onto campus. And here's what they teach us. They teach us run, hide, fight. Run, hide, fight. I was thinking, Bob's going to love me, our deacon of security, right? Because this is probably great training, you know, uh, great training in a church too. Run, hide, fight. So um, if, uh, if a shooter comes onto campus and you can run away, you know, run away, um, they teach us. Um, or if you can't run away, um, but you can hide, hide in a classroom, lock the door, hide in a place that's not around the window. Or, uh, or maybe you need to fight. Uh, if the shooter is coming toward you, and uh, especially toward you or your students, right, it's him or you, right? So... Whatever you got, fight. Run, hide, fight. Well, with the, coming, uh, with the coming of the soldiers, Jesus could take this advice, right? Run, hide, fight. He could run. Judas was probably leading a lot of people to come and arrest him. So uh, the word translated in verse 3 as band of soldiers, and you see the same word in verse 12, that could refer to a band of a thousand soldiers, um, but sometimes it was used for smaller groups, maybe 200 soldiers. That's still a lot of people, right? Uh, They had to leave Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. They had to go down into a valley, and then they had to come up into the garden. Uh, And they're carrying torches, and lanterns, and weapons. So I imagine Jesus saw them coming, right? He could, he could have run. Or he could, have, he could hide, right? <clears throat> so the garden that Jesus and his disciples enter in verse 1, it was probably a large, walled garden with many olive trees. Uh, and uh, this is during the night, right? They had lanterns and torches. Now, it was during Passover, uh, which we actually know would be, uh, would be the full moon. So there was a full moon, but still it's dark. Uh, he's in this area where he probably had places to hide. Or he could fight. That's what Simon Peter thought, right? Uh, you can read that in verse 10. Uh, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. Remember, in verse 3, it says that they came with weapons. Right? Peter understood what was at stake here. 
He felt the gravity of the situation. The fact that Malchus's ear was cut off probably means that he was going for his head, right? It's, it's time to fight. It's them or us. It's life or death. But Jesus says, no, it's not time to fight. Look at verse 11. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Well, the cup here is an image that Jesus borrows from the Old Testament It speaks of God's wrath as a cup that's poured out on human sin. In other words, this is a way of Jesus referring to his death as a death for sin. Not for his own sin, but for our sins. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. So Jesus tells Peter, put away your sword. It's not time to run. It's not time to hide. It's not time to fight. It's time for me to die. This is the task that the Father had given to the Son, to die for our sins. And we see in this passage that the Son willingly took up this task. In fact, I think that's the main point of our passage today, and so it's the main point of my sermon, and it's this. Jesus stepped up to die so that none of his disciples would be lost. Jesus stepped up to die so that none of his disciples would be lost. We'll see two things in this passage then. First, Jesus stepped up to die. And second, because of this, none of his disciples will be lost. So first we see that Jesus stepped up to die. Earlier in this gospel, in John 10, Jesus teaches that no one takes his life from him, but that he will lay it down of his own accord. And here we see that teaching being played out in real life. I think John wants us to see that Jesus was not just a victim. His death was a horrible miscarriage of justice. So in that sense, he was a victim. But he also chose purposely to lay down his own life. He stepped up to die. We begin to see this in verse 4. It says in verse 4 that Jesus knew all that would happen to him. So like Peter, he understood the gravity of the situation. And, And even more than Peter, he understood that he was not simply in danger of soldiers with weapons. He was preparing to face the cup of the holy wrath of God poured out on our sins. And yet, although he understood the gravity of the situation, verse 4 tells us that he came forward. He came forward. He stepped into the light. Remember, it was night, right? They had had lanterns and torches, it tells us in verse 3. Jesus could have hidden under the cover of darkness. It would have been hard to identify him Um, with all the confusion and with the darkness. That's part of the reason that Judas was there, right? Judas was there to identify Jesus. We read in the other Gospels that Judas identified him with a kiss, right? Very famous. But it's not, if it's true that Judas identified him, it's also true that Jesus himself stepped forward. He came forward into the light. He stepped up and said, in verse 4, 
whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am he. He knew the gravity of the situation. Verse 5 says that Judas, he was betraying him. He's standing right there betraying him. And yet, he stepped up to die. Well, the soldiers and Judas seem pretty surprised at his boldness. In verse 6, we read that when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Who would just identify himself like that? Who, who would say to his executioners, just step up and say, I'm the guy you're looking for? They seem surprised at this. But there's probably something more going on here too. The way that Jesus identifies himself are with the words, I am he. But in the original language, it's just two words. It just says, I am. And this is a way that God had identified himself in the Old Testament to Moses. For example, he said, I am who I am in Exodus 3. Or to the prophet Isaiah, he says the same thing. He says, I am the one who creates light and darkness. In other words, I think when Jesus identifies himself here, he's not just saying, I am Jesus of Nazareth, the one you're looking for. He is saying that. But I think he's also saying, this is who I am. I am God himself. His statement is so bold and striking that it actually causes the executioners to fall back. Again, I think we see that no one took his life from him. You don't take God's life from him. Right? He laid down his life of his own accord. He stepped up to die. I think it's important for us to see here that, that Jesus was both a man, right? He was flesh and blood just like you and me. He died, right, on the cross. And yet he was also God. He was both a man and he was God. We call this in theology the incarnation. It's the teaching or the doctrine of the incarnation. This is the idea that God became human flesh in the person of Jesus. He was incarnate in the flesh. He was both God and man. Why is this important? It's important because only the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, could drink the cup of God's wrath for our sins. He's the only one who could do it. This is why Jesus is the only way to God. It's not just some arbitrary decision that this religion's better than that religion. Right? It's, it's because there's only one person in human history who was at the same time God and man and who stepped up to die for our sins. So if you want to have your sins forgiven, your only choice is to look to Jesus. It's your only option. Beggars can't be choosers. I wonder, if, I wonder if one of the reasons we often say in our culture there are many paths to God is because we don't realize that we're beggars. Right? We don't realize our moral bankruptcy. We don't realize our moral poverty. Right? Poor people don't have options. Right? We don't have options. The only option we have is to look to the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, 
to drink, to drink the cup of God's wrath for our sins. And that's exactly what he's stepping up to do in this passage. I want you to consider with me the love of Jesus in drinking the cup of God's wrath for our sins. I, one of the things that John is trying to persuade us of in this gospel, we'll see it later on, there's, there's actually a purpose statement. He says, this is why I wrote the gospel. Um, and, and the reason that he wrote the gospel is to persuade us that Jesus is the Christ. And Christ means king. It means he's the anointed king in the line of David. The one of whom it was prophesied that he would rule over the whole world forever. So we can't forget that Jesus has great power and authority. And yet, unlike so many people with authority in our lives, he didn't use his authority to serve himself or to save his own neck. Instead, he sacrificed himself to save his disciples. When the time came and the executioners were there, he said, I am he. He stepped up to die. That's the first thing that we learn in this passage. The second thing we learn is why he did it. Why did he do it? What we learn is he stepped up to die so that none of his disciples would be lost. And I see this in verses 7 to 9. I'm going to start by reading verses 7 and 8 again. You can read that with me. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So, if you seek me, let these men go. Jesus identifies himself again as the one they're looking for. He, he steps forward. He puts himself in harm's way so that his disciples can escape. He says, if you're looking for me, let these ones go. Again, observe Jesus' love for his disciples. He steps up into the light so that they can escape. John also tells us that in doing this, he was fulfilling a promise that he made. We read about that in verse 9. Verse 9 says, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. What he's referring back to here is what Jesus uh, said about his disciples in his prayer just one chapter before. So I, I actually want us to turn back there and look at it. Uh, it's in chapter 17, verse 12. You're not familiar with the Bible. Um, chapters are the big numbers. Verses are the small numbers. So just one page back. Chapter 17, verse 12. And it says there, <clears throat> Jesus says in his prayer, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. So all of the disciples whom the Father had given to Jesus, he says, I have kept them. I have guarded them. I have protected them. He kept them safe. And a prime example of that here is, is, is in our passage, right here in the garden. Jesus enters the garden with his disciples, the threat comes, and he steps up so that none of his disciples would be lost. We could think of an analogy of a father stepping forward in front of his family and saying, take me, let my family go. Right? That's what Jesus is doing here. I don't think that John is just writing this down to teach us 
that Jesus uh, protected his disciples from physical harm in the garden. Obviously, that's one reason, right? But I think he's also writing to teach us that Jesus protected his disciples from spiritual harm as well. And I say this because all of this goes back to a promise that Jesus made in John chapter 6. And because that's so important, I actually want us to keep our finger here and turn back to John chapter 6. Uh, John chapter 6, again, chapters are the big numbers. John chapter 6. And then I want to read verses 37 to 39. John 6, 37 to 39. Starting in verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So here we see the same promise. Everyone that the Father has given to Jesus, he will not lose one of them, but raise them up on the last day. Isn't that talking about the resurrection? What's the resurrection? The resurrection is the resurrection of the body, right? So that's certainly protection from physical harm, but it's also deliverance from sin and death itself, right? So it's protection from, from spiritual harm as well. So I think what we see then in John 18 when it, when it talks about that promise that Jesus made and John says Jesus has now fulfilled that promise, I think what we see is kind of the first step in Jesus fulfilling the promise to protect his disciples both physically and spiritually. Right? This is the promise that Jesus made to his disciples here, but really to all of his disciples, right? to all that the Father has given to them. So if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, if, if you believed in Jesus, this is the promise he makes to you. All that the Father has given me, I will lose none of them, but I will raise them up on the last day. In the church, we call this the teaching or the doctrine of preservation. The idea that God and Jesus will preserve all true disciples to the end, all the way to the resurrection. Not one of them will be lost. Here's how our, our own doctrinal statement here at Trinity says it. I'm reading from Article 9. God's providence watches over our welfare, and we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. None of Jesus' disciples will be lost because Jesus stepped up to die for us. If he's died for us, we will be saved from the wrath of God. One thing I don't want us to forget here is Judas. Right, Judas is the one in the very act of betraying him. Jesus had how many disciples? Twelve disciples, right? But one of them was lost. Judas was the exception. I want to actually turn back from, to John 17, 12 and look at that one more time because Jesus even acknowledges there's an exception. 
He says in verse 12, I'm just reading in the middle of the verse here, he says, not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Judas is the exception that proves the rule, right? But Judas is also a warning to us, I think, that you can be numbered among Jesus' disciples. You can be baptized. You can uh, be a member of a church. You can walk an aisle. You can have an experience of Jesus. And yet, at the end of the day, you could betray Jesus and become a son of destruction. This is why the great mark of a true disciple is perseverance. Perseverance. Continuing to believe the gospel. Continuing to follow after Jesus. Being a disciple of Jesus has never merely been about beginning on the right road. It's also a matter of ending on the right road. Our doctrinal statement puts it like this. I'm reading from that same article, Article 9. We believe that only those who endure to the end are the true people of God, having their persevering attachment to Christ as the mark which distinguishes them from those who emptily profess their faith. So we need to persevere, right? We need to continue to believe the gospel. We need to continue to follow after Jesus. But I don't want us to overemphasize Judas, all right? We have to remember that Judas is the exception. Right? Even after Judas has betrayed him, uh, John tells us this, that Jesus fulfilled the promise in verse 9, chapter 18, verse 9, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. I have lost not one. So of the remaining 11 disciples, how many were lost? None of them. Right? None of them were lost. I have lost not one. Even Peter who makes the dumb move in verse 10, was not lost, right? I mean, when I think of Peter, I think it is amazing that someone who says such dumb things and makes such dumb moves in the Gospels ends up becoming one of the most important disciples in the history of the church, the Apostle Peter. We as fellow disciples, we should take encouragement and comfort from Peter. We make dumb moves, but Jesus saves us from our dumb moves. When the pressure's on, we sometimes think, I need to do something. I need to say something to save myself. Or sometimes we think, I need to save Jesus, right? Of course, sometimes we do need to do something, and we do need to say something, right? That's part of obeying God. That's part of loving our neighbor, is doing things and saying things, right? But sometimes, other times, our words and our actions, they betray that what we really think is that we can fix the problems in the world, right? Or what we really think is that we can fix the problems in the church. Or what really, we really think is that we can fix the problems in our home. When the truth is that we can't. And Jesus tells us, put the sword away, right? We can't save anyone. Jesus has saved us, and he will not abandon us. He says, of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. 
if the Father has begun a good work in you, if, if you have experienced the love of God in Christ, if you have been given by the Father to Jesus, then he will not lose you, right? He, he begins a good work in us, he continues working in us, and he keeps us all the way to the end. And the proof of that, if you need proof, the proof of that is recorded right here in this passage. He stepped up to die so that none of his disciples would be lost. Take encouragement from that this week. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for sending your son. And Jesus, we thank you for uh, obeying the Father, for stepping up, for placing yourself in harm so that we might live. And we pray, Lord, that you would keep this promise that you've made, even for your sheep here. I pray, God, that I pray that you would keep them all the way to the end, that you would lo not lose one of them, we pray this in hope and on the basis of your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.